Hey, by the way, my name's Doug. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, we're so glad that you're with us today. Uh, when we wrap up, there's a trunk or treat happening outside as well as a chili cook-off. The chili is supposed to be really good. I think, you know, if the sermon gets long, I think they said they were going to open the door and just kind of like get the smell up here. So I'm like, all right, we're done. We're out. We're going. So, but we'll get on it right now. And this morning, um, I want to raise the topic of doubt um, because doubt sometimes is seen as something that is the opposite of faith. But I want to look at how Jesus himself treated doubt by looking at an important story in the book of Luke. Now, we've been going through the book of Luke all year, just kind of working story by story. Uh, and particularly, a lot of the stories like about miracles, um, we notice that Jesus talks about having faith and that, that faith sometimes is connected to someone who experiences healing or a miracle. Uh, sometimes, not always, but sometimes. But he praises great faith. And so sometimes we think of, of doubt as being the opposite uh, of faith. But, but faith, having faith, does not mean that we are absent of doubt. Right? Having faith doesn't mean, okay, there's no doubt at all in me. Um, and I think we'll see this in this story that we're going to look at today, but it, a lot of the stories in the Bible, there's just honest stories about honest doubts from really good, honest people that are just sprinkled all through the scriptures, all through the Bible. And I think that's to encourage us to go, hey, when you feel doubt, <laughs> you're, you're normal, right? You're normal, it's okay. Um, and again, sometimes people say, well, we're not supposed to have any doubts, um, so we're going to pretend we don't have doubts, or we're going to quiet those doubts. But there's this quote by a, a pastor named Brian Zond. I find this quote so helpful. We're going <laughs> to see it pop up a few times in the message today. Brian says, people don't abandon faith because they have doubts. People abandon faith because they think they're not allowed to have doubts. You see that, right? People don't abandon faith because they have doubts. People abandon faith because they think they're not allowed to have doubts. And that's why we regularly here at Hope we come back to this theme is because I want and our leadership wants everybody who comes through these doors to know that, that having doubts is no reason to not try to have faith. Like you don't have to leave faith if you have any doubts. In fact, there's a way of seeing doubts that when we handle doubts with open hearts, it can actually lead us to a more honest faith. Like doubts can actually result in the journey in us having a more deeply uh, rooted trust in Jesus. Um, and, and that kind of rootedness is needed because whatever swirls around us, whatever doubts or trials or confusion comes in life, because it always does, we can still point ourselves back to trusting in Jesus even when we have doubts because, friends, doubt is normal. Doubt's normal. And maybe this is a new thought to you, but God is not upset. He's not offended by our doubts. He doesn't get mad. God doesn't get irritated. God actually invites us to bring our honest doubts to him. And I'm really glad that God doesn't get offended by our doubts. Because um, I don't know about you, because um, I'm glad that God's not like me, because I sometimes get offended. Um, when, you know, for instance, my wife, when she doubts my driving abilities. Anybody else have a similar dynamic in your marriage? Any of you get nervous when your spouse drives? Come on, just, just raise your hands. Some of you are honest. Some of you are lying. We'll have a class for that later. Um, but this summer, we took a road trip to 
Montana, or let's see, Colorado, Montana, and then up to Canada. And on this road trip of 5,700 miles over almost four weeks, uh, there were opportunities, a um, couple, couple 13, 14 opportunities for Heidi to doubt my driving choices. One of our most adventurous um, stretches was going through Glacier National Park. Has anybody ever been to Going to the Sun Road? Right? Raise your hand. Yeah. Okay, you put the picture up here. This could also be called Going to Meet Jesus If You Make a Mistake Road. Okay? This is, it is treacherous, right? And I've got lots of experience driving all over the world, but somehow, can you believe my wife apparently still had some doubts about my driving abilities? So I think it was on this particular road after maybe the fourth or fifth time that she grabs, grasps for, um, I don't know if it's technically called this handle in the car, but the oh crap handle. It's the PG version. Yeah, I don't know if you have that part in your car, but um, yeah, I finally was like, relax, babe. Like, how many, how many times have I gotten us into an accident? Like, none. And, and Heidi replied, well, yeah, so I guess we're due now, so. <laughs> so, yeah, well, Sometimes I, I, yeah, I get offended by my wife's doubts of me, but I'm thankful that God is not like me. God does not get offended by our doubts, by our questions. And we're going to look at that in a story today out of Luke chapter 7. It's actually a rewind if you've been with us in this series, but it's one I kind of put in my hip pocket thinking, huh, we didn't tell this story, but maybe we'll come back to it. And so today we're going to come back to this story. And it's a story that involves a character named John the Baptist. But before we get to the Luke seven story, I want to just kind of rewind a little bit here, and um, John the Baptist is our character, and, and because some of us, you know, maybe you're new to church or you're not familiar with some of these characters, so I'm just going to give a quick sketch of who this guy is before we get into his question that is around the theme of today's sermon. John the Baptist. Um, John the Baptist was about the same age as Jesus, a few months older than Jesus. They were born about the same time. John the Baptist was born uh, as a result of a prophecy, um, and his parents were very old. They thought they were way past having children. John was this surprise child. There were all these prophecies around how he was going to be this important figure that, that led people to God and pointed to the Messiah. Um, and so John grows up, and he becomes this, uh, this uh, oh, by the way, did I say who he was a cousin of? Jesus, yep, okay, some of you knew that. All right, so John the Baptist, he grows up, this miraculous birth, um, becomes this prophet, and he is out in the middle of nowhere, out in the wilderness, the Bible says. That's where his station is. And does anybody here know what his diet consisted of? There were two things. Locusts and honey, okay? Now, I'm down with the honey diet, but like the locust part, maybe I could use it. Like it slimmed me a bit, but no thanks. Um, so, odd character, his clothing was made out of, anybody remember? You know, like camel skins, camel hair, that sounds scratchy, that sounds awful, right? It sounds terrible. But here's John, he's this wild, crazy prophet. Now, there hadn't been a prophet for hundreds of years. The people of Israel thought, okay, the prophets, it's done, it's over, it's never going to happen again, and here comes John, so there's all this excitement. And so John, people would come to him. Think of this, this is before there were stadiums, there were arenas, sound systems, whatever. People would come to him out in the wilderness to hear him preach, scholars estimate that probably hundreds of thousands of people came to hear him preach. Uh, lots, thousands and thousands were baptized by John, where he put him in the water and dunked him under for repentance of sin. He was well known. 
Um, and, and yet, and yet, even though he was this well-known, uh, he knew that his job, he wasn't supposed to be the hero of the story. He was there to point to Jesus, who is the true hero of the story. He was there, his ministry was to point toward the Messiah, the one they were expecting to come. See, the Messiah was who was expected by the people of Israel 2,000 years ago. They're in oppression. They are ruled by others. They are, they are literally dying under the thumb of the Roman Empire. They want a Messiah to come to deliver them, set them free. John's here to point to the Messiah so people will know who the Messiah is. Now, John as a prophet, and maybe so, so prophets apparently tend to have an edge. That's probably true today too, right? They have a little bit of a, an edge. In fact, sometimes it's called a prophetic edge. They're a little testy. And so um, John decides um, that the king of Israel, who was kind of a puppet king, King Herod, um, uh, he was supposed to be Jewish. He wasn't all Jewish. He was put in place to you know, keep people under control. But he was, again, trying to be the king of the Jewish people, Herod was, but he wasn't living according to the standards set out by the, the law of the people of the Jews, and so um, what Herod had done was he ditched his wife and married his sister-in-law, his own sister-in-law, and so John the Baptist sees this happen, says, well, I've got an influence, I've got some voice, I'm going to call out Herod on what he's done, and so he does that, and at some point, Herod probably gets a little tired of the criticism and of John stirring the pot and conflict. So, so Herod has John taken, arrested, and thrown into prison. And he probably was going to leave him there to rot for at least a little while. My guess is that he probably at some point was going to, all right, he's learned his lesson. I will let him free. The Bible even says that Herod kind of was entertained listening to John. So that's going on. It was kind of interesting, kind of weird. Um, sadly, Later in the story, we're not there yet, but later in the story, uh, John actually gets um, executed, uh, beheaded. Herod has to order it because he's made a fool of himself and guaranteed made a promise he shouldn't have made, and that was the request that was made. And so John ends up dead, but that hasn't happened yet. That's farther down the line, right here in the story, where we are today, where we're going to pick up the story today about doubt, Luke chapter 7, John is in prison. Now, uh, archaeologists point, paint the picture because they found where they think the prison was that John was kept, and this was a horrible place. It was like a fortress kind of prison no one could get broken out of. Um, think of this. John was used to living out in the wilderness, open and free spaces, and instead of what he's used to, he's living in this dark, cold, wet, miserable, stinky prison. I, they, let's say one of the parts of being in prison back then is they didn't clean up after anyone. So you would be laying in the filth of your and other people. Prison was miserable. So imagine John in prison. He's miserable. He's waiting. Yet he hopes that he's going to get set free. He's going to be released, which leads us to the story we're in today. Luke chapter 7. We'll pick up with verse 18. Verse 18, John's disciples, so John had followers, apparently they had visitation, told John about all these things. And it's like, okay, wait, all what things? 
Well, if you read before this, uh, Jesus had been doing miracles, healing people who were deaf, giving sight to blind eyes. He had raised from the dead the son of a widow, and that was pretty amazing. So John's heard all these things and knows, oh, oh, okay, something must be up, but I'm still waiting. I'm waiting. John's disciples, verse 18, told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he said to them, he, I'm sorry, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you, Jesus, are you the one to come? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one to come, or should we expect someone else? I mean, just stop for a second, right? He's hearing all this cool stuff that Jesus is doing, but he's confused. John is confused for a few reasons. First of all, if John's cousin Jesus is actually the Messiah, which John had prophesied and predicted and told everyone, if that's true, then what's John doing over here rotting in prison? And the second thing, if, if Jesus is the Messiah, how come Jesus isn't doing what everyone in the country expected, the Messiah they were expecting? They, why wasn't he doing what they thought he would do? What's a Messiah supposed to do? They weren't doing it. Jesus wasn't doing it. Verse 20, when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one to come? Or should we expect someone else? Verse 21, at that very time, so right as John's disciples are showing up, at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, evil spirits, gave sight to many who were, many who were blind. So all this stuff's going on. They show up, they're watching this at the same time that they're getting ready to ask their question, right? So they see that going on. Then they ask their question of Jesus, and here's how Jesus responds. And the way he responds, um, if you do just a little bit of study, Jesus actually, his reply is giving answers from the prophet Isaiah, who said, when the Messiah comes, here's what the Messiah will do. Ready? Um, he replied to the messengers, go back, report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And we'll stop right there for now. Now, again, imagine this. John the Baptist, he's having doubts. He's in prison. He's clearly puzzled because Jesus wasn't doing what he expected him to do. Like, like the kind of kingdom, the kind of Messiah that John wanted um, would have included, you know, people being set free, right? Prisoners getting set free. I mean, Jesus himself, a few chapters before this, announces the start of his ministry by saying, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to give sight to the blind, and to set prisoners free, like Jesus himself had just said, here's why I've come. And so if I'm John, I'm thinking, okay, so how come, Jesus, you're not setting me free? <laughs> like, was I wrong, Jesus, when I told everybody who you were? Um, are you the Messiah? Or are we supposed to wait for someone else? And I think a big part of John's doubts um, are connected to wrong expectations and beliefs he had. First of all, notice when Jesus answered him, he didn't scold him, did he? He didn't say, how dare you question me? You're the one that even told everybody. Who... Very kindly, Jesus just points to what's going on. He points to scriptures and tells him, here's what's up. Here's where your expectations can be. 
See, John's ex- doubts, his, his doubts were connected to expectations, uh, beliefs that he held about who he thought God was, what God was going to do, uh, beliefs about what he thought Scripture said that God was promising. Lots of the Jewish people thought God was promising a political and military Messiah. That's who's coming back because that's what they needed. But they were reading into the Scripture something that wasn't there. And so Jesus quotes the scriptures that refer to the Messiah, and he says, here's the stuff, and that's exactly the stuff that I'm doing. I'm doing what the scriptures prophesied the Messiah would do. Jesus is telling John and everyone else, like, the Messiah, yes, the Messiah's here, and the world is being taken over by an invasion of a new kingdom, but the kingdom that's now coming is not a military type of kingdom. It's not a political kind of kingdom. It's a kingdom that will only advance and defeat darkness and defeat evil with the power of love and sacrifice. Oh man, if we as the church would remember that today. The kingdom of God does not come through getting people elected and having our side win and crushing the opposition. It never has, it never will, it didn't then, it doesn't now And Jesus had to remind John, your expectations are off. Some of your expectations about God and the Messiah are actually wrong. That's the only answer Jesus sent back for John. And I like to think, and just imagine, we don't know, that maybe John gets the news from his disciples of what Jesus said, and now John just sits and thinks about those scripture references that Jesus is pointing to the Messiah, and, and maybe, maybe, I like to think at least, maybe the lights came on in his heart about how he'd been expecting one thing, and instead, um, instead of a military Messiah for Israel, he starts to realize, oh, this is not just about that kingdom for this area. God is unleashing a kingdom for the entire world. It's much, much bigger than we imagined. And again, we don't know how John responded to this because soon after that, he's, he's executed. But I like to believe and imagine that maybe John sat there and realized as the lights came on that the things he believed were wrong. And instead of that leading him into more frustration, maybe he, in his doubt, ended up being led to greater trust in God. Maybe he started to believe that no matter what his circumstances were in a terrible prison, that John, he could experience the comfort, the presence of God right in the middle of a dungeon. And, And he started to know that though he might feel alone, he is never actually alone, that God was with him even there. His expectations had to shift. And I think this passage, this story, for us is a good invitation for us to wonder about what we believe, what, what wrong expectations might we have? Are there things that, that, that maybe you and I believe about God that aren't actually who Scripture declares God to be? Because those things maybe are worth doubting. Maybe those things are worth doubting for us to wonder about, to, to doubt And there's lots of good reasons, actually, to doubt and carry questions. But I wonder if sometimes some of our doubts are centered around wrong expectations or beliefs that we have about God. 
And, and when we look at that, I think the question makes sense to ask, can being honest about doubt, instead of afraid, can, can being honest about doubt actually lead us to a stronger faith? And you've heard me say yes to that before, but let me say it this way. Yes, it can lead us to a stronger faith sometimes. Not always. Not always. Not always. That quote uh, by Brian Zahn stuck out to me because it's actually personal. It's on the screen again here, but it says, people don't abandon faith because they have doubts. People abandon faith because they think they're not allowed to have doubts. And for me, this is personal on several levels because I have seen faith abandoned by so many people that I care about. Sometimes pastors that I've worked with, sometimes people that have been in a church for a long time, sometimes people that I see who have been hurt by the church and they abandon faith. So for me, it's personal, especially when people leave the faith because doubt for was, the, was not allowed. The context they were in, like, no, doubt was not allowed. Doubt was feared. And so when they had doubts, they had to stuff it, and eventually it led them to have to walk away from faith. And, and just one story I'll tell you about that. And I'm going to tell this. When I tell stories that have to do with people that are close to us, sometimes I try to make it a little more anonymous because I don't ever want them to, like, hear a sermon randomly or show up or watch online or something Maybe in second service I could just tell you guys straight up, but I'll just to protect their their anonymity a little bit. Um, but 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 the people I'm talking about here, um, if you have a loved one that has left the faith and it breaks your heart, we can we can relate. We can relate. Um, there are three young adults in our life, and I mean Heidi and I. Um, we're very close to them. We love them very, very much. One of them was raised in the church. Two of them came to faith when they were teenagers. Now they're young adults. And I didn't know them back when they were teenagers. I didn't meet any of the three of them until later in life. But, but when they were teenagers, um, they got serious about God. They started going to a church. This is a good thing. But the problem was the church system that they went to was the kind of church system where you weren't really allowed to doubt things. In fact, doubt was feared by people. And so anybody that had doubts, they were just kind of given pat answers. Like, here's the answer to that. Just believe that. No, don't believe. Don't wonder. Just here's what you have to believe. And... Um, Listen, there's stages of faith where it's so helpful to have really good answers. I'm not against good answers, right? Um, but sometimes those answers are a little deficient, maybe not even scriptural. <laughs> uh, not fully anyways. But at first, these three, as teenagers, they just drank it all in. They wanted to learn the Bible. They had this desire to know theology. But one of the other problems in the system they were at, um, and this is a well-known local <laughs> church, um, the, the, the approach at that church was not just, well, here's the way we interpret scripture. I know other people see it differently. Here's what we think and why, but, you know, we, uh, instead, that church was like, hey, no, no, here's how you interpret scripture if you're a serious Christian. Anybody else probably is a heretic, right? Uh, so the problem is, um, if you're a thoughtful, intelligent person, eventually, like these three, these good questions started to rise up. And in that particular system, part of what was taught um, was that God, you know, chooses who is going to be saved for heaven and who he chooses who will go to hell. And that's just the way it happens. And these intelligent, smart kids were like, wait a minute. Eventually, they were like, as young adults, so wait a minute. Does a loving God really create billions of people and then just predestine them 
to, you know, believe in God or not believe in God, um, is that already decided when they're born that, you know, some are, well, from the beginning, you know, one's going to heaven, that one's going to hell? Is that predetermined before people are even born? I mean, would a loving God create people and then from the start just give them no chance, no choice? It's a good question. Um, one that you could not ask in that circle. Um, they were also taught that the sovereignty of God, which the Bible talks about sovereignty of God, but they were taught that what that means is that God is in control of everything that happens. God is in control of everything that happens. So everything that happens, therefore, is God's plan. It's God's will, good or bad, evil or not. We just can't understand it. It's just a mystery, um, which, you know, works for some people. Might even, you know, there's even a few verses that kind of look that way, but the rest of Scripture actually doesn't. And when honest people ask the question, wait a minute, if everything that happens is God's will, what kind of God would plan for billions of people to live in hunger and poverty in this world? How is that the will of God? How is that sovereign? If God, you know, controls everything, then how did that person get molested, that child get harmed? What kind of God would plan that? These big questions for these three, and a lot more than just those three. These are just three that we know. Um, and by the way, we have different opinions here at our church. We don't say you have to believe all of this or all of that. There's some people in our church that believe things that I believe differently, and we go, you know what? As a family of God, we're both trying to be faithful to Scripture. We're not going to fight over it. We're going to love each other in spite of not agreeing on everything. So some people would believe what I just articulated, and that's okay. You're still welcome here. Um, I don't believe that that's what God's will is. I don't believe that that's what the sovereignty of God means. Um, I don't think it's God's plan or God's will for evil or death or disease to overtake us. I don't think God takes our loved ones from us. I don't. Longer sermon if you ever want to. I don't believe, oh, God just took him. I don't believe that at all. Longer sermon. I think that belongs to uh, Satan and a fallen world, not God's choosing. But, again, these three had all this pressure, what they had to believe. They were not allowed to doubt. And because they were taught other churches were actually heretics, they didn't just walk away from their church. They didn't walk away just from the church. They walked away from God and now years later would describe themselves as atheists. And this breaks our heart because of our love for these particular young adults. And I can think of other people in a similar camp because nobody said to them, hey, it's okay to have doubts. And actually, your doubts might press you closer into God. It might deepen your faith. Maybe if you press into this, the Bible even teaches something different than you've been taught that might help um, so stories like the one I just, I hear those stories over and over and over and over again, and it's part of why here at Hope, it makes me wonder, what does it look like for us to be the kind of church where people don't have to abandon faith when they have serious doubts? How, how do we just love, support, and walk with folks as we learn to follow Jesus together without force-feeding answers to people so they got to believe that, Listen, by the way, answers can be really good, but usually, oftentimes, we jump in way too quick with an answer 
And it's just not time yet. They're not ready to hear it. And they hear, shut up, don't talk, don't say that is what they hear. That's not our heart. So we need discernment about when we want to give maybe an answer or a situation that's been helpful. We need God to show us these things so that we can walk together, be the kind of place where instead of people having to walk away from God when they have doubts, they can press in and maybe even go deeper in their faith as we follow Jesus together. We can be the kind of place where we learn to follow Jesus even when we don't have good answers, we don't understand, or we don't agree even with each other. Because what we become confident in is not the answers. We become confident that God is good and that our Father God can actually be trusted. We hang on to that when the other stuff just seems fuzzy and difficult. That that God is with us even in our doubts. He doesn't leave us He is still with us. I can think of a personal story. It was the moment that I realized, probably about 13-ish years ago, I realized that no matter how hard I tried, my family, my marriage at that time was broken beyond repair. My spouse was not coming back. And I remembered when it hit me, my response was more than just doubt. It was rage. I, I, I cursed at God. I said, I'm done. I'm finished. I want nothing to do with you anymore, God. I said, I said I'm out. I'm done. I'm out. And thankfully, there was a pastor, a mentor, who helped me realize that behind some of my doubt and anger was that I, I had this, this bargain that I thought I had. I thought I had a deal with God, this un unspoken expectation like my my expectation was well here I am I'm a pastor I've given and sacrificed all kinds of things to serve God and so I realized somehow deep inside I expected that my marriage would work out if I just stayed with it if I did my own you know work and my own you know counseling like okay the God would just never allow my family to be broken up how many of you know that the Bible doesn't promise that It doesn't promise that. And I didn't even realize that that expectation, that bargain was inside of me. But facing that, then in my honesty, my doubts with God, longer story than I have time to tell today, Jesus actually deepened my faith and my trust in him. Like I started to realize God didn't cause my pain that the pain I was going through and that my family was going through broke his heart too. And that in time, and I still don't understand all of it, but now I have a deeper confidence in the goodness of God, in the presence of God, stronger now than it ever was before. So that's part of how I am passionate about this, but I have personal experience that this is true. You can let your honest doubts lead you to a stronger, deeper faith. Again, that quote again. People don't abandon faith because they don't have doubts. People abandon faith because they think they're not allowed to have doubts. And Hope Family, as we follow Jesus together, let's be the kind of place where people can share their struggles and share their doubts. I mean, even look back at the story of John and and. And Jesus, Jesus didn't answer him with a correction. Hey, John, here's where all your wrong beliefs are. 
So let's take that as a model and not try to fix each other's beliefs right off the bat or, or give answers too soon. And today, maybe you're here and you're someone that's going, no, no, I'm the one right now who's wrestling with doubt. Maybe that's you. And if that's you, I'm so glad you're here today. So glad that you are with us. And I have just two things. This isn't a formula. This isn't a fix. These are just two things that I just want you to consider um, while you're going through doubt. Two things. Number one, in your honest doubts, I invite you to do what Jesus invited John to do, to look around and see what God is doing. And even look around if you've known God for a while, and just remember what God has done for you in the past. Like, again, Jesus didn't give John the Baptist like this all the ways that he and the Jewish people, most of the Jewish people, had the wrong beliefs about the nature of God and what the Messiah was supposed to do. He didn't do that. He just told John to notice what's happening around, to look around and see what God was up to. And I just think that might be a, it's not a formula, it's not a quick fix, but it could be. That idea could be helpful as a practice for us as we go through doubt. You go through confusion. You go through hard times. Don't pretend it's not there. Don't ignore it or stuff it. Just also at the same time, pause. Remember what Jesus has done for you before. Remember the times in your past, whether you knew it was God or not, where God has shown up for you or provided for you or brought you comfort or, or brought healing to your heart. So number one, again, look around. See what God's doing. Remember what he's done before. And number two, this is the hard one, so I'm talking to me. Stay open. Yes, express, express your honest doubts to God and, and, and stay open. Have, have an open heart posture to, to receive, to, to wonder, to be willing to trust God. Even in the middle of your doubts, like, let me say this, don't slam the door on God. Don't shut God out. Like, stay open, like, stay, stay humble, because you never know what Jesus might do. Maybe, maybe he might actually, with the question you're raising, the doubt you have, maybe he's going to give you some sort of insight or discernment about that thing that's troubling you that you're questioning. Or, maybe not. There's no guarantee. Maybe, maybe you're going to walk and keep that difficult question um, and have to live in the tension and the mystery of it because he's, there's maybe not an answer that you'd like to have. Stay open. Um, maybe in staying open, here's what happens to me. In staying open, I start to realize that some of the expectations that I have about God are not the expectations that God operates from. I'm having to make an adjustment sometimes. Like, oh, I've thought this or was taught this about you, God, but as I look at scripture and follow Jesus with other people who've been around the block, I, oh, maybe I'm wrong about that expectation. Maybe that doubt is worth having because you're doubting something that's not actually biblical. <laughs> that's a doubt worth keeping and causing you to re-evaluate 
You lean into the counsel of Scripture like I had to. Like, what does God actually say about how he's going to be with us in the storm? Those things can be so, so very helpful. Now, part of why I think this is so important, you guys, um, is because doubts can, can, doubts can have a negative effect on our walk with God. Right? It can. That's why people get afraid. But, but hear me. Your doubts don't cause God, like you have doubts, God doesn't go, I'm going to push you away. See, the danger, and I know this from experience, is that I can get so stuck in doubt that I close myself off. I isolate. I won't be open or listen. And I think it's so instructive to, to, again, look at John and Jesus in Luke 7 and notice that John had doubts. He expressed them. He asked his question. But look what he did. He just waited for their response. That means he stayed open. And again, I think of me and I, I get so full of angst or doubt or complaints. I, I express them to God, which he's good with, but then I know there's times that I go beyond just having honest doubt and I shut down my openness. I close off my heart. And friends, when that happens to us, is God mad at us when we close off our heart? No, no. God doesn't leave us. Jesus doesn't go anywhere. But when I close off my heart, I shut down my own openness to receive anything that God might have for me. And again, I know it's so easy to shut down when we get hurt. God knows that. He understands. He treats our weakness tenderly. But I'm just aware that when I shut down, instead of staying open in my anger, in my doubt, I'm only hurting myself. I'm only hurting myself. Listen, we don't get a hard heart because God's punished us and cursed us with a hard heart. God's not punished. We do that stuff to ourselves. See, there's a door to your heart. Revelation says that Jesus stands at the door. He's knocking. He's waiting. He's ready to be with you. But you get to decide to open that door to Jesus or not. And God Almighty himself will not force the door to your heart open. And that's why I just encourage us, this last one again, just to stay open. Like John, just stay open, make room for God to show up, to show us something new, or to deepen our trust in Jesus while we wrestle with doubt. The worship team comes. Nothing else sticks with you today. I hope this statement does. Your doubts do not cause God to push you away. God has promised to be with you, and so you are never, ever alone. And this is big for us. We talk about that a lot here, but this is huge for us. And here's why. Because even in the middle of doubt or fear or anxiety or depression or loneliness or I don't know what's going to happen or why did that happen, in the middle of all of that, God is still there. Jesus is with you. Jesus treats your weakness with tenderness. And he never said it was going to be easy, right? God never said life would be easy, but he did say, I will be with you always. He said, I will, all over scripture, he repeats that I will never, ever, ever leave you. I will never, ever, ever forsake you. I will be with you wherever you go. 
So God didn't promise us an easy life like some people do, and then when life's not easy, they start to doubt. Well, God didn't promise that, but he did promise to be with you and I. We are never alone. And so today, friend, no matter if you are here and you're full of faith and trust, good for you. Or today, if you're here and you are full of doubts, maybe anger and fear and rage, it's okay. Or maybe, more likely, most of us are a mixture of both sides, no matter where you are. We're going to sing a song, and I want you to see these words, maybe be brave enough to sing these words, to speak these words. They're from Psalm 23, and I want to invite you and I, no matter where you're at, whatever's going on in your heart, just as a posture of openness, sing these words as a prayer and a reminder of what's true about you and what's true of God. We stand as we sing together.